As far back as I could remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Hello, and welcome back to The Last Jedi on the Left podcast. As always, I am your host, and for this episode, I'm joined by Graham. Hello there, Aaron. Uh, thanks for thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, so um, I guess for anybody who doesn't know, um, I mean, I kind of know of you through your football podcast that you do, um, but you also have a James Bond-related podcast. I do, yeah. So I figure if we're going to talk James Bond, who better to get on than sort of, you know, a true fan and authority on the subject. So, uh, yeah, you were, you were, I was uh, glad that you, you agreed to come along. No, oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. Uh, um, yes, I, I do a James Bond podcast. I also do a Star Trek podcast, but we, we don't really talk about that one. Um, but, uh, yeah, the James Bond podcast, I do with one of the other guys on the football uh, podcast that I do, Stout Sound Football, Terry DeFerrin. Uh And we've been doing that for almost as long as we've been doing the football one. Um, but yeah, lots of fun. You wouldn't believe that we, we could actually go on talking for over 10 years on podcasts about one franchise of films, but uh, we certainly found a way. We're on there with Gary Andrews as well, who's that great friend of ours who we've known for a long time. Yes, yeah, and uh, like I say, it's it's an enjoyable listen as well. Like I say, I'm, I'm, uh, I enjoy both of those. But so I, uh, I said to you, uh, we sort of obviously talked before the podcast and stuff, and we were trying to agree on, on which one to choose. And you landed on From Russia With Love? Yes, yes. Uh, what, what was it made you pick that one? Um, well, I think it, it's quite an easy choice, I think, on as far as, um, as, far as the what most people will see as the best James Bond film. There's there's usually about three or four, and yes, all those three or four will probably be appearing in the top five later. Um, but this one, for me anyway, is is the winner. And it, it is, um, it's one of the very, very earliest ones. Uh, and it's still not really in that groove of what a James Bond film really is. So they do things slightly differently in this one. They do things as well that um, filmmakers in that that follow decades afterwards go back and take ideas from as well. So it all really without this film, the the franchise really is a lot less and perhaps wouldn't be where it is. I think a lot of people look at Goldfinger as, as the, as the pinnacle of, of James Bond and certainly in um, non James Bond uh, books that, 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 I, that I've read about movies, they rather disparagingly say that every film that followed uh, Goldfinger is just basically a remake of it. Um, re- but Goldfinger follows this film that we're going to discuss today. And this this film, yes, from Russia with Love, is for me, a, I will never tire of watching this film because it is it is just near perfect. Um, I think that's a very, very good intro to it, to be fair. I'm pretty much in, in lockstep with you as well. It, it was one to me that I guess 
kind of growing up, you were always, like you say, you, like you mentioned there, that, that Goldfinger was always the one that's held up as being the the pinnacle, the the ideal one. Um, but to me, I always enjoyed. Perhaps it's less, just feels a little bit less showy in a lot of ways. But yeah. I always enjoyed From Russia with Love a lot more. Um, and like you say, it is although it's not fully settled into the the full tropes and everything that you expect from a James Bond film, it does start to introduce them a little bit more. There's there's quite a few that aren't present in, in Doctor No in the first one that that then come along a little bit more in this, such as, you know, um, Q, I think isn't in the first one, is he? And, and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I was in agreement. And it was one that, like I said, I rewatched it um, for, for, for the first time in years, uh, a couple of years ago, and I was really happy that it held up as well to me. Yeah, it does. Um, of, of course, this is... One of the, the things that we talk about on the podcast, uh, uh, the Old Job Pod, is um, whenever we review a James Bond film, we always have to have a moment where we reflect and, and look at it through the eyes and say that it was of its time. And so there are certain attitudes in this film that, that of course, don't ring true today or, or shouldn't ring true today. But they are of their time, and they were certainly acceptable in that time. And we have to say, well, let's not ignore them. Let's look at those, and, and let's not celebrate the fact that you know th- there's quite a lot of violence against women in, in this, um, because there is. Yeah. Um, but let's let's say let's see, look at it and say, well, look, this is what attitudes were like back then. And and so, yeah. Uh, that doesn't detract my enjoyment of the film, so I, I still enjoy 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 this. Uh, but I, I know that there are things that are not great in it, and th- this goes throughout the franchise and pretty much any film that you watch in the sixties as well. Yeah, there is that. I mean, because that's the kind of thing of you mentioned that you know, violence against women thing that you can tell that that was very emblematic of the time. By let's say, I mean, you would say watching any other Bond film from around the time, but like you say, pretty much watching any film from around that time is, is sort of a showing. And that, like you say, is kind of a thing with the franchise as well, because as I've moved on with the rewatching, you know, I've, I've moved into the Roger Moore films and they're all, there's still that kind of, albeit he's not violent against women as such, but there's still a sort of undercurrent of just, you wouldn't make that in a film nowadays kind of thing. <laughs> no, you certainly wouldn't enhance the sound effect of Bond slapping uh, Tatiana. <laughs> So, no, almost certainly not. There's no way it would get enhanced nowadays. No. Um, so I guess I, I, the question I usually ask people as well is, um, what are your sort of recollections of the first time you saw this film, if you can remember them? Um, I can't really remember watching this for the first time. I'll have to be honest because I'm very old. Uh, uh, I... I I was listening to you, to your RoboCop episode, and which both of you were, were, were talking about not having been born. I think when when, when the film came out, and I thought that um, my co-host on on um, on the Odd Job Pod, uh, Terry, and I went to see that when it came out at the Polyatoria. So so that gives you an impression that we went to see an X-rated film in 1987. Um, but I wasn't I wasn't old enough for when this came out. This came out in 1964, and um, which was five years before I was born. Um, so I watched this on telly as I was growing up. Um, I grew up right in the middle of the Moore era, so 
the first film I went to see was uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah. So, um, the when I was growing up, the you, you had Telly Bond and you had Film Bond. Film Bond was Roger Moore. Telly Bond was Sean Connery because every Christmas you watch a Sean Connery film and it would be Doctor No, Goldfinger, or you get from Russia, uh, uh, from Russia below. Um, and if you're really unlucky, you got Thunderball. Boom. <laughs> um, so, so that's that's my recollection of growing up. That's that that that's where I was introduced to Bond. So you would, I would go that yeah, Roger Moore would be the cinematic experience, which is probably why I am a lot more uh, welcoming of the Roger Moore franchise, part of the franchise, because. Uh, for me, it was a very important part of, of, of my growing up. So whereas a lot of people will look back on the, on the Roger Moore era and think, my God, that's just way too 70s for me. Um, yeah, the 70s, they were a thing. You, have, you really have to embrace it, I'm afraid. Uh, but yes, Roger, uh, Roger was all about the uh, safari suits. And yeah, Sean had just that lovely cut of of 1960s flair and 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 it's just it's just absolutely lovely all the thing about about the look and feel of those, of those 60s films it's no wonder that everyone says that, that sean connery is their favorite bond i don't have a favorite bond it's like asking me if you have a favorite child i don't think it's a fair question so uh even though i'm here to give you a top five later so um uh, i'll try to do that the best way i can without being too um yeah, unfair on all the others. I can say, uh, I, sent, I sent some diplomacy coming. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, <laughs> because I, I change your mind every five minutes about this anyway, which is, which is another thing about, about why I love doing the podcast on it and talking to people like yourself and coming on to stuff like this. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think I, albeit, you know, it's slightly shifted in terms of years and stuff, but it's a very similar sort of thing for me on this is that, like Brosnan was obviously the the bond for me when I was uh, when I was kind of getting into it and everything, and I'm fairly certain that it must have been the run up to like Tomorrow Never Dies maybe, and just sort of ITV probably had one on every Sunday for right. half the year probably, and uh, up to that point, I, I just remember every Sunday just sitting down and, and watching them, and I kind of w- worked my way through every single one that way. So that was my sort of introduction to all things Bond, and it's possibly some that I haven't revisited as such since then either. So I maybe looked down on them because I didn't quite enjoy them at the time as much as, and now I probably would enjoy them a little bit more, a bit more of a critical eye now, a bit older and stuff. Um, and then vice versa, I'm sure, with with some of the other ones in there as well. But uh, but yeah, this, like I say, this one was one that stood out for me early on. And and like I say, it does hold up on the rewatch. I think it's really interesting. Um, it's very, very uh, spy related, I suppose. Which you know, yeah. some of the other ones, not to not to disparage, you know, Roger Moore, but some of them Roger Moore ones felt a little bit, you know, just went from place to place. Whereas this one, you can kind of see the the logic a little bit more, and it kind of flows a little bit better, I think. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, uh, a lot of the Roger films are, are just a bunch of stuff that happens. Yeah. Uh, it, really, just one beautiful location after another, which is fine. This is which is what what you what you go for. What one of the uh, recurring things we say on um, 
on, on on our podcast is is unfortunately when when you when you love a film and you want to talk about it on a podcast you really have to closely examine it and the last thing you want to do with, with bond films is actually look closer at them because then you see all the cracks um but we do it anyway uh you're right with with this one it, it is very spy it has got intrigue all the way through and the fact that you've got three different um forces involved all with different things all knowing that the other side's lying and the fact that they don't even know that there's three involved there's three involved this is actually a specter film rather than a james bond film james bond doesn't even turn up to for the, for the first 20 minutes of it it's it's all about their plan and all about how how they're they're going to hatch it and then and then he in the last in the last act he just pulls it all out from them. um it it's a it was also made in a way that they didn't really make bond films after this which was you know more than bond does um and and that that puts an added level of complexity on it that i think most popcorn chom chomping spectators don't really want but i think they i think it works well in this one i think you can watch it as just a bunch of stuff that happened you don't even need to know why they're shooting shooting that helicopter they're shooting the helicopter and um, and the whole of the 80s was was just was just built on shooting at helicopters and making them blow up this must be one of the earliest it's not the actual earliest helicopter exploding um that belongs to a 1959 film called or is it the beer moth? Oh, okay. It's a big English monster movie. Yes, from 1959. Uh, I have to. I have to go to um, explodinghelicopters.com. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you're not familiar with it, listeners, then exploding helicopter. Um, it was. I think it's, it's a blog. It's an old-fashioned blog, and it's still going. I think. And uh, it's basically a, a big fan of, of of helicopters exploding in films. I think he's got a Twitter account as well. Um, but yeah, hunt it down. I think it's exploding helicopter singular dot com. Hmm, interesting. Didn't never didn't know about that. So that's one of the right. wonderful bits of the internet, I suppose. <laughs> Uh, yeah, like, like you say, it's, it's funny you mentioned about it being a, a Spectre film as well, as such because it it does properly i guess introduced the organization albeit i believe dr no was mentioned yeah. to be a member but yeah. um but yeah it does properly introduce them as such and i love the way that it has this kind of slow build effectively like you know you don't see who number one is and you don't know who this shadowy villain who these shadowy villains really are up until you know three four films down the line which is you know something that that effectively people praise things like like marvel have done or whatever like that in terms yeah. of like popcorn entertainment you know they've done that over by building this world as such over multiple films it's like well, james bond was doing that in the 60s that's yeah. you know oh no totally. you really yeah no it's not and uh and i think this is one of the the, the, the great things about it because obviously they've they've brought this element of it back with the craig era where there's a, a continuing arc um but in this film you've got mentions of dr no dr no does does explain what specter is um through the very clunky uh, acronym that it has um 
but you've also got uh, Sylvia Trench, who is Bond's girlfriend, appears in when when Bond first arrived there. Uh, you've got some references back to Doctor No as well in in, the, in those opening sort of half hour or so, uh, and, and so you get that that sort of feeling of continuity, which is very much like the books. The books were like that; they were they were sort of picking up from the last one and and going on to the next adventure. Um, uh, but yeah, the, you're right. This this whole sort of world building thing that it does in here for for Spectre as much as as for the uh, as much as for the Secret Service as well, the, the Bond's world of Secret Service. Yeah, yeah, and like I say, and as you mentioned, the the books there. Obviously, this is Spectre is effectively taking the place of a, a organization called Smirsh in the books, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, now I don't know what the the actual reason for that was. I think it was just basically just to keep. Um, international markets happy i think i think it was it was a, a bit of a fudge for, for that yeah so my sort of I guess cribbing on sort of like a half-assed internet research type section there is that because i always assumed it was that same thing that you know if because smirsh are very much the russian villains of the books and that this was to this is an international criminal organization to yeah. to keep kind of foreign audience is happy and and that's what i my assumption was because I, I think this film as well does a very good job of that like you know effectively that um tatiana is sort of working with bond effectively and it's russians and and you know kind of flips the west good east bad type thing especially with like then you've got red grant some englishman as well so and he's the main villain and it does kind of flip that so i, I that's how i thought the whole thing was going to go but then i understand that uh, Ian Fleming actually was convinced that the Cold War would probably not actually last that much longer and that he didn't want the Russians to necessarily be the bad guys because it might age the film really badly then. That was what it said on the internet. So I'm not sorry. That was why he, he pushed for the change. But um, yeah, I don't know how true that is. Yeah, it, it could also be, be the fact that he was good mates with a lot of... Lot of um... Uh, Cambridge guys who turned out to be Russian spies anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is that. <laughs> um, yeah, so like I say, um, I think we kind of, uh, we mentioned about, you know, it's it's got the, the usual things that, that return and stuff in there. There's um, there's also, I love the the introduction, I guess, of the the usual sort of James Bond will return that appears in the credits. Yeah, oh yeah. At the end, yes. that, that's such a great addition, and you know, it's ten and a half the time it's not even right because they end up moving on to a different film in production in between. But um, I always love that that kind of indication of where they were looking and where they were going at the time. Yeah, I don't know how many times it, it, they got it wrong. I think they only got it wrong. I'm trying to think now, because they, they they yeah they they got it wrong at the end of Spy Who Loved Me. Yes, yeah, that's the one I'm thinking of. So maybe that's yeah, the only one. But I think, well, they 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 got the they they that was, yeah, they they decided to go with Moonraker instead because of Star Wars, and they wanted to get something a bit spacey in there. And so, for your for your eyes only was the one that they were meant to be going to, and that got bumped to to, to the next one. Um, there was the other other time at the end of Octopussy when they said the next one would be From a View to a Kill, and they knocked off the From. So a bit sort of like Revenge of the Jedi thing. That's yeah, sort of, they yeah. 
but yeah and now they don't even have it they just have james bond will, will return which when i went to see the um the premiere at the of uh, no time to die at the royal Albert hall well i just thought i'd drop that yeah, in there very nice yeah um, very nice red carpet baby yeah um and uh but i did stay there everyone stayed there to wait for that and it took forever for it to come up that james bond will return and uh, uh yeah of course it is it is something that makes a bond film for me and it's it's always something that i hang around for even now perhaps that's another thing that like you say mod, modern audiences kind of because you know i guess a lot of people only ever wait around now because it's going to be a superhero film or whatever and they're, they're waiting to see if there's another scene at the end of the credits again well james bond's been doing that for 60 years because he made you wait around to see what the title of the next film was going to be yeah yeah of course the 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 credits back then only lasted about 30 seconds rather than a quarter of an hour. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And especially with these films, because you sit through all the credits up front with the, the title music and everything. So, Of course. And, and they, they make such a scene of it. And that's uh, Morris Bender working his magic, as always, with the opening sequence. And, and this, is, this is another thing about, about when you get into, into to Bond, is, is, is everything about them, all the... All the, the the ingredients have that little bit of extra magic of whether it's the Ken Adams set design or whether it's Morris Binder or John Barry, all the people in there that, that, that come together and make what is magic about Bond. Um, and I love the, the, like the music, for instance. This is John Barry's first. With, with Dr. No, he really didn't have a lot to go on. He didn't really do a lot of the composing on this one. So it for... Um, from Russia with Love, this is when he really starts to get into it. Um, and then he hit the straps completely on, on, on Goldfinger. So you can see the progression. But I think as a Bond fan, you love the, the processes involved. And, and this, is, this, this is what makes, uh, as we've already said, um, from Russia with Love so good. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there is that. Uh, and you sort of, I guess you feel it a little bit with this one, with it being the, the second in the series. But there is that really strong um sort of continuity i guess which doesn't necessarily um isn't necessarily something that you immediately notice as such because you know apart from m and money penny and bond faces don't change too often but the fact that it's always the same people behind the camera that are showing up time after time in terms of like say score or, or set design or anything like that that it does. I mean, maybe that was a, just something that was kind of symbolic of the film industry, or particularly the British film industry at the time as well. But it was something very strong that has kind of kept throughout. You know, even to the point where you go on about producers. Obviously, originally you had like Cubby Broccoli, and then it gets passed down generations and stuff, which is yeah. uh, something that definitely separates it. I think from most. Well, I've been to uh, quite a few. I, I went to uh, uh, a fan thing at the BFI last year. It was a celebration of the 60 years of Bond. And there was lots of uh, interviews with actors who had been in the film and people who'd worked on the film as well. And they always go on about what a family unit it is. Not in the in the literal sense of, of the broccolis, uh, but but in the in the fact that every two years these people come together and they, and they work together again. And they have, have been people who have been there for... for numbers and numbers of films and and the for the actors they were saying about being welcomed into it and then and then that bringing something else out in their performances to give a uh, 
to give the performance of a Bond film. And and I think it's those sort of things that, that help carry the franchise through. And I'm not sure... Uh, people have said that, oh, well, you know, the, the, the people are trying to get hold of, uh, of that, of that, what the Bond franchise has had. People look at things like, like the Marvel, uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. Also look at Mission Impossible series and, and think, well, yeah, but this, this is really just a very slick Hollywood version of it. This isn't what's happening at Pinewood is basically done on on a shoestring really yeah. effective compared to what's happening in, in hollywood i mean these aren't cheap films but they are <laughs> cheap in comparison yes very much so yeah that's it and um it's it is one of them things of like uh i, I guess like you say it, it is kind of people throw the accusation at the james bond films a little bit that they're often sort of quite reactive in terms of coming up to things that are quite popular you know uh, examples being like live and let die is obviously kind of reactive to a lot of the black exploitation films that kind of came around moonraker was obviously reactive to to star wars and things like that but then also like you've kind of mentioned there there's a lot of things that hollywood have taken now effectively from that, that bond was doing way back even yeah. right right back at the inception of the franchise no certainly certainly uh, it's yeah that I don't think anyone is really saying that, that, that Bond breaks ground or or, or does things that are are innovative, um, it, but it stayed alive for all this time because it's moved with the times, I, I guess, um, and because it, it can do do things. So a, a lot of the, the the people who worked on Star Wars also worked on Bond films because a lot of it was filmed at Pinewood, um, so there was a lot of uh, of, of cross pollination there as well. Um, so I think it was probably worth worthwhile actually making a Star Warsy type film, even though it's not really a Star Wars film. <laughs> not especially, <laughs> but the posters look pretty good, didn't they? The posters look pretty good. In fact, actually, I think Spy Who Loved Me is probably more more of a Star Wars film because it's a lot of it's in the desert. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a very good point, actually. Yeah, I'd not thought of it that way. Well, there you go. There you go. Um, I, I don't know if you've got any other notes or anything you want to bring up. Um, well, only for, for listeners to say that, you know, if you haven't watched it in a while, then, then, then certainly give it a couple of hours. It, it is, it's not like your normal James Bond film, but you can see where all the other James Bond films are going to come from. I think what I'd, I'd really say about, about um, uh, From Russia With Love, which, which, which I, I've only really got used to over the last sort of uh, couple of years probably on the 20th or so watching of it was I, I look at it and I now look back and I think there are elements in this film that are you could pick all the bonds that come afterwards and you could put them in there and and there is something about that that you think this is like a Roger scene or or this is a Craig scene and um, I'm thinking like for Roger the whole thing in the gypsy camp, that's a Roger Moore scene. The whole the whole interaction with the gypsies, the the the, 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 the two girls coming into his tent. That's, that's so Roger. Yeah, <laughs> really. yeah, definitely, yeah. But also as well is Robert Shaw's portrayal of Grant, which I think, I think, if you were to remake, remake this film now, you could not cast a better actor 
than Daniel Craig to be Grant. I think that's the yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very it. good point. And if you think about the interaction as well, when you first see Grant, the interaction between Cleb and uh, and and Grant, it's so reminiscent of the interaction between uh, between Judy Dench's M and Daniel Craig in the first few scenes of of Casino Royale. I think it's it's just uh, it, it's amazing how you know the what we want out of heroes uh a leading men has changed in the times and now the the one who is the villain is now more likely what we expect from our from our heroes yes uh, a really really interesting point actually you raise because uh, it, it's kind of uh, it to touch on on what you said as well about um about like red grant for example um i i always think that not maybe not necessarily when you think of you know your we'll get into the into the top fives in a minute but you know you yeah. think of your top five um your bond henchman or bond villain that perhaps rosa club maybe would get in there but almost certainly red grant's not going to get in there and then like daniela bianchi's uh tatiana's probably not going to be in your top five bond girls or anything like that and yet they're near perfect at what they're doing in this film i think yeah Totally. I will come back to this this point in the top five. <laughs> okay. Well, with that, with, with no further said, let's let's move on to our top fives then. Yes. Okay then. So, uh, like I said, we just we we kept it kind of simple. We just said, right, okay, we'll just do our top five Bond films. So, what have you got at your number five? Well, okay. When when we said the top five, yeah. I've, I neglected to ask whether or not we were going to include this one because this is actually my favourite one, but, and I've already said that. So I'm going to go with the top five after this one, okay? Yes, I was going to say, that's, I, we didn't specify that, no. <laughs> but I'm in full agreement with you. This is also, I think, my favourite Bond film, and yet yeah. I've also not got it in my top five. So, yeah, okay. we'll go from there. Yeah, so, so, so just for listeners there, just to know when you get to number one, and it's not this one, okay? So, <laughs> yeah. Right, do you want me to go first? Yeah, sure. Okay, my number five, my number five is is a personal choice, very 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 personal choice, but it's License to Kill. It's uh, Timothy Dalton's second and last outing, and uh, I just love it because it's just a barrel of laughs. And and if you haven't seen it for a while, and it's likely you haven't, if you don't spend a lot of time on ITV four, that is, um, then then yes, check out License to Kill. It is hilarious, and it is it's action packed, and it's. It's got Felix Light to getting eaten by a shark in it. Come on, what's not to love? That's that's true. So I, I, I kind of mentioned before, like you say, that that my uh, some of these films I haven't seen in a good long time, um, and that's that's definitely one of them because my memories of it really at the time were I, I wasn't into Timothy Dalton after The Living Daylights for whatever reason. Again, I want to, I reserve the right to change my opinion on this when I really watch them at some point. But, um, so for me, I kind of just hadn't really gotten into his, his bond at all. Um, but my memory is that, that license to kill was a lot meaner, I guess, which seems almost quite quaint to say now, given what happens in a lot of the bond, you know, in the, the Craig bond films, for example, but especially at the time, perhaps coming off, off of, uh, tail end of Roger Moore's bonds as well that, that it seemed a bit more a bit more in your face I suppose than the others 
it was. I mean, it, this is, this film is is really uh, a Bond's answer to the late eighties uh, action movies, the the Shane Black era, and so it, it it's really quite a brash, lots of big explosions, uh, and but the villains in it are great. The uh, the 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 music, uh, the the theme tune is by is by Gladys Knight, and it's it's just it's just lovely. It's just brilliant. It is a lot bigger and bolder than the Living Daylights. It's got a lot more going on in it. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, I I I don't want to say any more. I'm going to leave it to the listeners to to, to, go, to go and see that. Yeah, definitely want to go and check out again. But I, I should as well. So yeah. I said, but the other memory I have a little bit from it is. Uh, Sanchez, the villain, is, is Robert Davy, isn't it? <laughs> and if we're going to mention 80s action films, I love him as being one of the Agent Johnsons from Die Hard. So, yeah. Oh, certainly. And, uh, and of course, his henchman is uh, Benicio Del Toro, a very young Benicio Del Toro. Oh, okay. That's one of the things I haven't... Obviously, didn't stick in my mind at the time, and I haven't rewatched it, so... Uh, yeah. But, yeah, right. and interesting. So my number five is one we've actually kind of touched on a little bit here previously. My number five is Goldfinger. Right. Which perhaps might shock some people. Um, you know, like I said, I imagine a lot of people have it higher. But uh, for all the things we've kind of mentioned about it, you know, being uh, sort of the, the pinnacle or whatever of the Connery era Bond and that Connery is everybody, you know, a lot of people's favourite Bond, um, to me, I think it, it, it it's just kind of undeniable in a lot of things. It, it's got so many scenes that, like, when you just say the words Goldfinger, you can pick, people picture, you know, the, the lady on the bed covered in gold or or the yeah. laser that's about to to cut James in a very uncomfortable place or, you know, things like that. And it's, it's or, or even just odd job throwing his hat, which I'm sure when I was saw this film quite young, I was also throwing hats around the room willy-nilly that annoyed plenty of my parents i'm sure <laughs> no, yeah. no and you can't really have a top five of bond films without having it in somewhere i'm glad that it sneaks in at number five for you though. yes so uh I, we can move on to your number four my number four is casino royale okay. uh, so and and this is the I, i'm going to give away a spoiler here but this is the most modern uh bond film that is in my top five um, but it is pretty much for a first film uh, for a new Bond. It's pretty much flawless. It, it is. It's it's such a good film, uh, and it's got a wonderful cast, and it's just done very well considering how long it had been, and considering what the previous film had been, which if we were doing our bottom five. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Would come very much in the last place. Um, yeah, Casino Royale for me is just such an enjoyable film uh, and one that I watch very regularly. Uh, and it, it, I think with Matt Mickelson as as the, the lead villain, you've got one of the the most terrifying villains in the franchise, and and it's such a good adaptation of the book which is something you can't often say uh in uh with with bond films um but yes casino royale in at number four yes i um 
I will save my thoughts on that film for later. Okay. <laughs> um, this is a little tease for everyone there. But yes, so uh, my number four I've got is Skyfall. Um, and that was one that I think it was kind of after Casino Royale, I thought they, they really nailed it with that one. I thought that was brilliant. And then the next one was fine, but I felt it was a little bit of a letdown. Um, and then it came to Skyfall, and even though in hindsight, basically they, they almost just did the same story as Christopher Nolan did in The Dark Knight, it's largely, you know, but uh, I thought it was actually uh, just kind of really blew me away. I thought it cemented Craig as being like one of the, the great Bonds at that point. Well, that's a weird thing to say when there's only been like six or seven, but, you know, he was he was like a top Bond at that point. And, uh, and yeah, it was just one that I, I really enjoyed. I think it's got some great moments. It's the great villain in there as well. Um, so, yeah, that was that was quite highly rated by me. Yeah, Skyfall, wonderful film. Uh, wonderful film. Doesn't make my, my top five, but um, it, it's only just outside of it. Uh, yeah, it, um, the thing about Skyfall as well for me is it, it taps into that whole London 2012 uh, thing. Um, a lot of it is based in London, lots of running around on the tube and everything. Uh, and I think as well, you get to it's it's the first one of introducing the sort of the Bond Scooby Gang, um, which which was which was a nice um, a, a nice addition to, to to the franchise. I think, especially under under um, under uh, Daniel Craig's um, part uh, time in the role. So uh, yeah, Skyfall, love it, and, and yeah, it's a decent fall that one. Yes, I think it's. Um... It's, it's funny, actually, you mentioned about the, the Scooby gang, because, like I say, it is kind of the point where he gets, albeit, you know, it's almost like it's halfway through his run, effectively, but it's, yeah. it's where he gets his own M and his own, like, you know, Q and everything like that kind of falls in place at this point. And, yeah, I good point on that one, I think. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll move on to your number three. My number three is, well, we've already met, you've already mentioned it, is Goldfinger. This is where I put Goldfinger. Um, now, I, it, this was the point I was going to say earlier when you said about um, about the the individual elements of um, of from Russia with Love not being the the, the, the greatest, um, but when you've got the individual elements in Goldfinger, everything is a solid eight or nine out of ten. Uh, you can find individual things and say, oh, I love this film because the music's great. I love this film because the Bond girl's great. I love this film because the gadgets are great. But if you were to go for top five films of everything, of, of all the different different varieties, Goldfinger would probably come into the top five somewhere because it gets something right so well. Um, and and yeah, I think you, you cannot have a top five Bond films without Goldfinger. Well, you can if you're being horrifically contrary but um yes if you are then just find something else to do it's not worth it even i didn't go for that hipstery of a pick <laughs> but yeah it is interesting like you say you, you can have you know top five bond themes it's going to be in there you can have top five bond villains it's going to be in the henchmen or bond girls and every single time it's, it's going to crop up i feel like so uh yeah. yes yeah strongly agree with that one 
Um, my number three was one that um, I've kind of come around to a little bit on this rewatch, and that is on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um, it was one that I think when I first saw it, kind of going in with the knowledge that George Lazenby only did one Bond film, he was never going to come back. It was almost a little bit throwaway for me. And obviously, it kind of it is a little bit as well because it has these sort of large ramifications that could, could affect the character for many films to come. And yet it's kind of almost dismissed straight away in the next one. Um, I, but yet to me, when I, when I rewatched it this last time, I was kind of awestruck about how it would be something that James Bond would come back to you know, with the, with the Craig Bonds effectively in that the way it kind of takes itself more seriously, it wants to do lasting impacts. It wants to do this kind of proper bond that has feelings effectively and, and can get hurt a little bit. And, and these things that, that Bond then forgot about for 40 years, pretty much. But yeah, I've, I thought it was really, really interesting and really good. Yeah, it is. Well, it's incre- it's an incredible film. Uh, there's there's no two ways about it. Um, of course, Lazenby is not an incredible Bond. He's not an incredible actor. He he, he wears a suit well, um, but he does okay. He does okay in this. And the reason he just does, does okay in it is because he's surrounded by people like Diana Rigg and Telly Savalas, uh, who uh, who are astoundingly good. And the interplay between those two is just some of the best scenes you will ever see in a Bond film. Uh, it is, it, yeah. Yeah, definitely. You chose wisely there. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, so, yeah, move on to your number two. My number two is The Spy Who Loved Me. Ah, okay. That's interesting because for, <laughs> it's also what I have at number two, so... Oh, well, we can talk about it together then, can't exactly. we? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this, um, maybe, because it is, it is um, uh, well, the first one I saw at cinema, and so probably has a bit more resonance with me, so uh, I, I don't know what your, what, what your, your excuse is. Though. Um, no, this is peak Roger. Uh, I do love the Roger Moore era. Uh, yes, I know that he does get a bit camp and a bit clunky, but, um, and he does get a bit old, but this is when he's at the peak of his powers and uh it, it is just, just such an enjoyable film the guy who wrote the screenplay for it is a guy called uh, christopher wood and he also did um moonraker um and you would say oh well then moonraker was a terrible film man you'd be wrong um because moonraker was not moonraker was a brilliant film you're just watching it wrong um <laughs> It, it is basically a remake of, of Spy Who Loved Me, um, but um, let's, let's not worry about that. Uh, yes, Spy Who Loved Me, brilliant film. Well, why have you got it so high as well? Well, I've got it so high because um, I guess it's when I was, when I was obviously, you, you're watching the, the Bond films and you watch them, obviously I was watching them in order and was watching them over so many weeks. And there's a large part of that where effectively James Bond uh, obviously, it was a lot longer for you because you lived it in years rather than weeks, for example. But there's a large part of that where James Bond is Roger Moore for me. And then um, almost almost every moment or every sort of best bit you can think of from Roger Moore is in this film. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now I, I really like I really like Live and Let Die as well. I think that was 
you know, an yeah. honorary mention just just missed the cutoff for me. Um, right. But right. you know, be it a great chase on skis that ends with a quite ridiculous but quite brilliant parachute jump off a cliff. Eat your heart out, uh, Tom Cruise. I think on that one. Um, and you know, the, the, there's cars that can turn into boats or submarines rather, and yep. great villains in there, and just just kind of, I think possibly one of the best Bond girls. Absolutely great Bond theme. It's it's almost kind of what everybody says about Goldfinger, I guess, but just maybe even slightly more dialed up for me, I think, on that one. So that's kind of where I fell on it. No, it, I, I, I can't disagree with you at all on anything like that. I, I, I love the film. I, I just enjoy it every time I watch it. There are things in it that, that could be better. I don't think Stromberg's a very sinister villain. The whole <laughs> under-the-sea stuff is uh, is a bit... <laughs> a bit you know. But um, no, I, I, I can I can let it go. I love I love the fact that it's got loads of submarines in it. That, that's great. It's, and, it, and it's got a great big, huge set that Ken Adam made to to, to blow up and have lots of machine guns firing. And uh, yeah, it 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 is a bit cookie cutter as far as like just just putting all the great elements of of a, of a bomb bomb film, but. If you can do that and you can make a great film at the same time, then you're doing really well. And the Lotus Esprit just gets better and better. Yeah, that's a, I agree with that. Like I say, it, it probably is a little bit, maybe in terms of if you, if you had to compare the two, like you say, you mentioned Moonraker and, and Spiral of Me, I'm perhaps maybe going to take Drax over Stromberg, but I'll take this version of Jaws over the Jaws that shows up in Moonraker, for example. <laughs> uh, even times he, out of a hundred, <laughs> when he's dropping uh, um, stones on his feet, and <laughs> yeah, or oh, he's fallen in love. Ah, uh, yeah, <laughs> comes for us all, I suppose. But there you go. Um, so yeah, that, that was uh, that was both of our our number two, effectively. Yeah, so it was. Just leaves. What is your number one? Well, my number one. We've already discussed it. It's uh, on the Matches Secret Service. Uh, and it, it is up there because it is such a good film, and it's and the, the reason why I put it so so high is um, not as high as as from Rush with Love, but the reason why it's so high is because it shows you can have a great Bond film without Bond. It's it, it, it's everything around it is is great. Um, Diana Rigg is brilliant in this as as uh, as Tracy and and the way she is portrayed in this film for years I thought they couldn't do Casino Royale after this because Bond only falls in love twice he falls in love with Tracy and he falls in love with Vesper yeah and, and so when you when you go get ahead to cast casting Vesper you've got to you've got to basically cast someone who is as good as Diana Rick was as Tracy and she was absolutely superb um, and very much she is the bond of the film she is the bond she's the one who uh, uh, but uh, and 
unfortunately at the end of it she is also the one who is the damsel in distress in the in the wicked in in, in the wicked person's uh, castle on the top of the of, of a mountain which she has to come in and save in a helicopter which is exquisitely shot by the way yeah. um peter hunt was a director of it um he had been the editor of all the the the, the previous uh, bond films um and he he he'd done such a great job on those on those on those previous ones um but you can tell that there is there is that sort of he, this is his life's work almost the, the when you got given the the directorial reigns of the film um I love it uh, on a Majesty's Secret Service, and when people say, "Oh, could you imagine if 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 Sean Connery had been in it?" and and he's and I think, well, no, I can't because then it would have been a Sean Connery film. It wouldn't have been about everyone else, um, and I don't know if if they they could have he could have shared a scene. I mean, the the scenes if he had scenes with him and Telly Savalas, they would have been great, and I'm sure scenes with him and Diana Rick would have been electric. But I think because this is Leightonby's only film, that you cannot imagine anyone else in it because it is so good with him there. But I don't think it would have been better with 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 Connery. Would have been a different film. Might have been a, might have been better. Might have been worse. Who knows? Yeah, that's very true. I think there is that kind of. Um... George Lazenby is, I don't mind admitting he is a very good looking man. So he he can, um, you know, stand up there and and sort of, he's almost blank slaty, but but ruggedly handsome as well at the same time. So there's like, there seems to be a lot of um, fight scenes in this one that that I feel were just, just felt more brutal than anything you'd seen up to that point, especially. He he was very good at that. Uh, Yeah, I mean, but he was trained in martial artists so he was he was very much in that what you see later on with your action heroes um someone coming at it from from that sort of and there was there is definite brutality in those in those fight those fight scenes um not helped in certain respects by a bit of undercranking by the director but you can't help that yeah um and also he looked really good in a ruffle shirt (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's not a lot of people can carry that off. Definitely not. Good. I don't think he was even 30 when he made that film. Maybe not. That's yeah. He was, he was he was very young when he made that. Yeah, I mean, doesn't the story go that his agent advised him to move on to not get typecast? Uh, there's lots of of, of stories there. I, I think that that he was. He was badly advised and on a lot of things like about how to behave as a as a film star, um, and so uh, and I think he he did he didn't get on well with a lot of the people on the set. But um, there's there's lots and lots of stories. Um, but yeah, he, he was probably advised not to get typecast. But um, unfortunately, every role he's ever done since has been as an unnamed James Bond type. Yeah, I was going to say if, if if your agent had given you that advice and you were George Lazenby and you know obviously what's gone on in the years ever since, I wonder if he's like ever spoke to that agent ever again. <laughs> Almost certainly not. <laughs> no, you'd hope not, wouldn't you? But hey, you know, considering that that what dog's breakfast um, they they made of diamonds are forever. I mean, he, he got out at the right time. Yeah, maybe maybe best to just have that one sort of iconic you know bond film that people hold up as opposed to 
some yeah. sort of weird uh, Las Vegas style. We'll, we'll get a bloke that we've already had in the films, but now he's Blofeld film back in there. So yeah, yeah, it's it's but, ridiculous. But yeah, we, we're not talking about diamonds are forever anyway, because we decided not to do yeah. the uh, the list with <laughs> various uh, various diamond related things. Actually, now we th- now we think about dying another day. But there you go. Okay, well, so so that that was that that was that was your third, and that was my first. So what's your first? So my first is as as we kind of mentioned before, and I kind of led people on. It, it is Casino Royale. Um, it was one that. Uh, as a as a film goer up to that point, you know, I, I kind of I really I really enjoy um, Golden Eye. I think that's a brilliant film, and was kind of um, kind of it was it was Pierce Brosnan like exploding into the role almost as, and then sort of every film after that kind of subsequently got worse. I think for me in in terms of his bonds. So by the time of Die Another Day, and you know he's fighting. Madonna, I kind of lost faith a little bit with them. So, yeah, I, perhaps I had also, you know, fallen a little victim to um, what I'd been reading at the time, you know, because obviously Daniel Craig was not a pop, amongst the the press at least. He was not a popular appointment when he was named as the next James Bond. So to say that my expectations going in were, were pretty low is is probably fair, and then. Yeah, I, I was completely blown away. It was because, like you say, it's very much what they did with um, on a Manchester Secret Service in the way that you know James Bond falls in love and and it ends in tragic circumstances and things don't quite go his way and and it's just something you don't really see in a James Bond film or at least I was less familiar with at least by that point. Um, I think that it it made. A film effectively about playing cards, really interesting and edgy seat <laughs> stuff. And I've never looked at a chair that might have a missing seat and a big bit of rope the same way ever since. <laughs> yeah, that's very very intense scene. Um, but as I said earlier, it's it's a it's a it's a very very good adaptation of the book. Um, uh, and obviously, the book was written maybe 60 years earlier. Um, and, but uh, it, it just carries it across so well. And the, the whole thing about the, the, the torture scene and the fact that you don't see what's happening to, to Vesper at the same time, and then they come back to that in the later films to think, well, was anything happening to her? Was she all in it? Was the, the whole fact that you can't trust anything in there, can't trust Mathis, you can't trust Vesper, and and there's that intrigue layered onto it, which you don't normally see. Normally, at the, at the uh, after um, White has shot um, uh, Le Chiffre, that would be the end. That would yeah. be the end of most normal Bond films. You know, credits, roll credits, everyone, everything's everything's done, dusted. But no, there's not. There's that extra bit on there as well. Um, which has the, the the tragedy bit, and it's not just like the the tacked on tragedy bit, like you get on a Majesty Secret Service, which Peter Hunt never really um, anticipated would be on uh, on the end of the film. He thought he was he it, they, he filmed that really with an idea of it being the first the opening scene of the next film, right? Uh, 
uh, but that wasn't that wasn't the, the case. Uh, I I don't know I don't know if that's actually right or not, but uh, or uh, I don't know if that 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 may be them re-remembering uh, things, but uh, but yeah, um, that's what uh, that's what they they did there. Uh, so yeah, uh, but I think that even when you see the opening sequence to to um, Casino Royale, the whole parkour thing. Uh, well, no, the opening sequence is the black and white scene. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's that's great, which is basically the most drawn out gun barrel scene ever, isn't it? Effectively, it's... yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but I, I I find myself quoting that 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 black and white scene pretty much all all the time. If anyone says on the, on the telly, if I'm watching that, how did he die? I have to say, not well. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> a very very good few moments in there and like I say especially I, I really I say I really like that I mean obviously I really like it it's effectively my second favorite Bond film even though it's number one for the list but um but yeah like I say the bit with the the parkour scene and stuff like that there's there's moments in there where it's you know they're watching the uh it's the it's the snake fight isn't it something I can't yeah. remember exactly yeah. but they're watching that and and you know he's looking over to his his friend or his his colleague and he's stopped touching your ear it's giving yeah. you away and stuff like that and it's just that's what they did in in spy films and in bond films and stuff and it doesn't make any sense why would you do that but it's one of those things that it points out and just lets you know that you just you're in for something a little bit different here yeah yeah and, and that's another thing i say at films every time i see someone t- t- touching yeah. their earpiece like stop touching your ear <laughs> exactly yeah um and also i have to i kind of have to shout out that um Obviously, introduced uh, Jeffrey Wright as well as, as Felix Leiter yeah. in this one, and I think he does does this kind of brilliant. Um, it, he lets you know that he is effectively Bond's equal, but he never shows you that because you you're not there to watch the Felix Leiter film; you're there to watch the James Bond film. No, and, and you really wish you 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 had gone that they had made a, a, a Felix Leiter film because I think that would have been great. He he's great in the next one. Um, Quantum of Solace is, it's a bit of a tragedy, really. It was, that was done, that was affected by a writer's strike. And so, and they pretty much rushed it out um, a lot quicker than they, they, they should have done. I, I really like Quantum of Solace, um, uh, but I know it's not a great film. Uh, I know it's got flaws, but there are scenes in it that are amazing. And there, there's enough in it give you hope that the fact that uh, if they if they gave themselves a bit more time they could have they could have made a really good film and they did when with, with skyfall um uh, but of course if they didn't get casino royale right there wouldn't have been there wouldn't have been all any of those films and they got casino royale spot on and yeah they made even watching people playing cards exciting yeah, um, I uh, I pretty much agree with that. I, I like especially on on Quantum Solace. I, I, as I mentioned before, it's it's not my favourite film, um, and obviously there are the uh, circumstances that surround it, like say with the writer strike and stuff like that. Um, but it, there are moments in there that make you think, oh, there is there is something to it. Like obviously the the, the villain's lair, effectively at the end of the giant building in the desert, is such an interesting idea that they had going and. That things mm. don't quite, and I also feel like it's possibly held back by its name as well. 
Yeah, yeah, there was a bit of that. They they were running out of um, titles for, for for Bond films by then. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I think the third the third um, Dalton film was penciled in to be Property of a Lady. <laughs> that was that was the the title of his, of his third film. I don't think it would have ended up being called that. But yeah, they they've used they used Quantum of Solace. Uh, it was a short story and a. I think it was in Fiori's um, only. I think it was, um, and uh, yeah, I don't know why they went with it. They could have, they could have come up with something else, but they decided to go with it. And um, yeah, another way to die would have perhaps been a better, <laughs> a bit, a better title for it. Yeah, actually, yeah, I agree. That probably would have been a, a better title <laughs> for it. Although, like you say, uh, that example there that you've used for the Dalton film, it could have been worse, I suppose. Yes. But yes, um, like I say, that's my, well, our, both our top fives there. Um, and I think we've ended up with four out of the five. Same. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very surprisingly, no one mentioned the, the David Niven Casino Royale. That wasn't the one you meant, was it? Uh, no, no, that was <laughs> And uh, I, I, I wasn't sure whether we were including Never Say Never Again, but considering it's a remake of, of, of Thunderball, it wouldn't have been in there anyway. No, yeah, that's it. It's uh, it's, it's okay, but it's probably never going to trouble the top five, I don't think. So. Certainly not. But, um, so, yeah, that was, uh, that was our Bond chat, effectively. Um, thanks, thanks for coming on. No, my pleasure. And it's been great to talk about Bond. Great to talk about Bond without Terry or Gary just waffling on in the background. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so, yeah, where can where can people find you and your various podcasts? Well, it really depends what people are into. If um, As this is a film podcast, I will direct you into uh, oddjobpod.com or if you go to uh, your podcatcher of choice and put in the odd job pod you should find our back catalog there we talk about uh bond films we usually take one bond film uh at a time and discuss it um recently we've also been expanding into something called the action movie landfill uh which is uh where one of us chooses a film which we sort of have this sort of unofficial era called the the um the sell-through era, which is um, that time from the late-ish, mid to late 80s to the early 2000s, very early 2000s. So um, we discussed films like um, Lethal Weapon, uh, Con Air. Con Air was, was a fabulous um, uh, discussion and one that, uh, were, were, that I really, really enjoyed. But we've also had Blue Thunder. We did Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was our most recent one. Uh, but yes, check those out. Um, if you like football, and I mean, if you really like football, then listen to The Sound of Football. That's on sofpodcast.com. Again, on all the podcasts of choice. And it's and if you just go up to your smart speaker and say, please play the Sound of Football podcast, you will hear my voice. Very good. Oh, one more. One more. Okay, okay. I, I will stop next. I do got a Star Trek one as well. Uh, called Hoon Pods Destroy. That's all I'm going to say about it. It's about the classic series of of Star, of Star Trek. If you get Terry on this podcast, I think you should do the top five of Star Trek films. But um, but it's your it's your podcast, and you may not even have any idea what what a Star Trek film is like. But uh, there's plenty of them. You can make a top five easy. Well, I was going to say, just obviously, 
the podcast has uh, has connections to the other star franchise effectively through the name. Um, and I, I've always been more of a Star Wars fan, but I'm not against the Star Trek. So uh, I, it's not something I necessarily grew up with, but I've seen the newer ones and I always... I think I own actually all of the the older films at least, so I I will go back and I will rewatch them at some point. But as I'm sure anybody knows, that the to watch list is huge and ever growing. Yes, it's so, always, yes. I I will uh, I will second both of your your first two podcasts as well because that's kind of like I say how I I first came across you guys and everything that you you do there, um, particularly the sound of football because that's always always in my uh, weekly listens as well um so yes uh, people people probably some people probably listen to listen to this are also football fans because they'll know i uh, occasionally do a, a crew alex podcast as well so um so yeah they, they can check you out there excellent but yes uh as for me i say i am aaron lewis 33 on twitter and then last jedi on left on instagram and also you can get me on letterboxd as well which is the last jedi on the left account on there um but that's all from me for this time um until next time we'll see you soon goodbye